as has become my pattern, I, I've done it again this week. I had grand designs. I get to the end of the week and it's like, I'm not sure that's where I thought I was going, but, but we're going there. We're going there. Just a little confession ahead of time. I would like to start with just a few quiet moments. And you see the words on the screen, which we have been looking at uh, every Sunday morning in this journey in Mark. I want to ask each one of you to just quietly think for a few moments, what does it mean for you to be a follower of Jesus? Now, you're not going to share this with anyone, okay? So don't think, oh my, I better come up with the right answer here because I've got to tell somebody what I'm thinking. Now, this, is just, this is just for you, for you and, and you alone. Take a few minutes to think about that. It seems, it seems a good question to ask ourselves in light of our journey through Mark as well as this season of Lent that we find ourselves in. <clears throat> we have gotten, I hope, familiar with the words that we see on the screen. Uh, and we have watched Jesus live out the character of God and the values of the kingdom of God in our journey through Mark. And we understand that he not only proclaims the good news, but he is the good news. And we've also said from the beginning that not everyone is excited about the good news that Jesus is and brings. We've seen the religious authorities reject him because they, they really don't believe that he is the Messiah. We have seen the spiritual powers uh, respond in, in ways that, that demonstrate great fear because, because they, they do believe that he is the Messiah, God's anointed one, and, and every time they, they meet him, they have to surrender control to him. So, so their, their belief, uh, their belief is, is, is couched in, in a longing to reject because of the truth of who he is for the authorities and, and others in the Gospel of Mark, um, there is a rejection of Jesus because they, they don't know who he is, don't believe who he is. I, and it struck me this week, you know, when, when God chooses to take on human flesh and break into human history, we probably ought to expect him to shake things up a bit. You know, and, and, and admittedly, I... You know, I was talking about my fear of the familiar and in, in spiritual things, paranoia, some would call it. Um, I think that's one of them. We get, we get so familiar with the words, we get so familiar with the stories that, that we forget to, to look closely at, at the stir that is, is being created. The status quo. Is, is being turned upside down by Jesus. Both earthly powers and spiritual powers, they're going to take notice because 
because their control has been officially challenged when they see Jesus. Whether they recognize it or not, they are staring God in the face. And that creates some shaking. We've also seen Jesus' followers, those who are his disciples, wrestle with who he is. They, they see things they've never seen before. There's no questioning in them. There's no questioning of Jesus' power. There's no questioning of where that power is coming from. But when they, when they think about their, their expectations of who the Messiah will be, according to, to the tradition and, and the, the teaching of the authorities, when they think about that and, and what it is that he will do, there is still, there is still a piece, one piece, one significant piece, maybe I should say it that way, that, that is perhaps causing the greatest struggle that they have in putting their complete faith and absolute confidence in, in Jesus as God's anointed one. And we're going to get to that. I, I want us to begin this morning just by hearing. If you want to close your eyes, just listen to this story that sort of sets the stage for a really challenging lesson that the disciples, both past disciples and present disciples, uh, need to grapple with. Let's listen. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor and spit in their eyes. <laughs> it's a good season for it, don't you think? Recommendation from the CDC. Indeed. Sorry, I couldn't resist. I mean, did that not jump off the page at you? It's like, oh my gosh, saliva. It's carrying viruses in his eyes. I think this is a hilarious story. Man, Jesus spitting on the man's eyes, putting his hands on him, and then he asks the man, do you see anything? Well, the man says, well, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Maybe I could see better if I didn't have spit in my eyes. No, I <laughs> scratch that comment. That didn't count. So Jesus, Jesus puts his hands on the man and heals him completely. I love what one commentator says about this. <laughs> he writes, like me, you are probably repulsed at this description of glazed, disease-encrusted eyeballs sprayed with spit and then a carpenter's calloused hands pressing in on them. But spit and the laying on of hands were perfectly understood in the ancient world. These tactile, sense-stimulating things were sublimely beautiful. Jesus was communicating with the man. He entered the thought world of the man and established significant contact with him. Jesus had his attention. I think that is so cool. If you read the stories that are available to us, or perhaps you know persons who are blind, read stories about them, you know that their other senses are, are heightened. <laughs> They're, they're, just, they're just much more sensitive 
with, with touch and hearing, smell, taste. I, I thought about that. This, this, man, this man would have felt the warm spit in his eyes and warm hands. And, and by the way, when was the last time anyone touched this man? His eyes, his face. I'm guessing it had probably been a while. Cannot help thinking that, that, that as he felt the warmth and the touch, his heart, his heart had to be pounding. Because Jesus was touching him, and I'm sure that his friends who brought him to Jesus had told him what they heard about him. There, there had to be a, a sense of what Jesus was going to do. I read this week that, that some scholars feel like this was a two-stage miracle because it was an exceptionally difficult one. To which my response was that, yeah, really? I, I'm sorry, but I don't think there are any degrees of difficulty with Jesus. You know, when he chooses to do something, it happens. When he chooses to touch and transform lives and bring healing, it happens. And I just can't help but think that he is up to something. I think Jesus is always up to something. And, and I, hope, I hope that that's not one of the things that we, that we lose sight of or, and that pun was not intended, that we lose sight of and, and, and miss in our familiarity with the Gospels and with Jesus. One of those things that, oh, he's up to something. We, we always need to be thinking that and, and looking for that. And I think he was, he was creating some fodder, if you will, for a conversation they were going to have as they walked to Caesarea Philippi. And the reason I think that is, is because in that day, rabbinic teaching considered blindness to be a curse from God. So Jesus has spit in the eyes and laid his hands upon a man who according to the religious authorities had been cursed by God. So, Jewish authorities believed in the possibility of miracles and, and a tradition taught that when the Messiah came, miracles would accompany his ministry. But, but blindness was in a separate category. It was understood that, that only God could reverse the curse of blindness. So are we beginning to connect some dots here? Only God. That last line that Mark uses to describe the healing, I think, is, is hugely significant. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Didn't Mark just say the same thing three times? Exactly. The, the, the repetition is purposeful on his part. And that third phrase, he saw everything clearly. He saw everything clearly. He uses a, a rare word 
that, that we don't find often in Scripture. It means to, to see clearly from a distance. The man's vision, in other words, was perfect. Gave this guy 20-20 vision. He could see near, he could see far, he could see everything in between. Jesus restored his sight perfectly. And up to this point, and this is important, up to this point in Mark's record, the disciples have seen Jesus do many miracles, but this is the first time they have seen him restore sight to a blind person. What do you suppose is going through their heads? This is potentially a game changer for the disciples. And I I think it's strategic on the part of Jesus because, again, I believe he's always up to something and he always has a plan. And he is about to take a long walk with his disciples and they have a very important conversation ahead of them. Plenty of time to talk about that walk from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, about 17 miles mostly uphill, as they ascended to the foothills that were uh, foothills that, that were near um, the mountains, back into a predominantly non-Jewish area. Caesarea Philippi had a reputation of being a pagan city, known for its worship of Greek gods, you can, you can begin to feel the, the discomfort again, perhaps, of, of the disciples. Many shrines that, that archaeology has found that were built into the rock cliffs around the city. Mark tells us that in the conversation that was read for us, there were a couple of questions. and Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am. Who do people say that I am? He seems to be interested in in what people are thinking about his identity. Although, to be honest, I'm suspicious that he probably had a pretty good sense of what folks were thinking. And, And again, I feel a setup coming. Think about the miracle that the disciples have just seen. Who do people say that I am? We might reward, or want, want to, uh, to rephrase that to, who do people perceive me to be? Who do people see me to be? On the tales of Jesus just performing a miracle of bringing sight to a cursed man something that only God could do according to tradition. Who do people see me as? Who do they perceive me to be? And the word on the street that people think he's great. They were impressed with his prophetic character. The average person knew that John the Baptist, Elijah, and all the the prophets at one place or another, pointed to the coming of the Messiah. But it's possible that maybe they weren't seeing him clearly. It's maybe that they 
weren't seeing him more than just like a great person walking around. They weren't seeing him with 20-20 vision. And so then we, we get to that next question. Here comes the lesson. So now he wants to see if those who are with him all the time see clearly. Those who've just witnessed this amazing miracle. And there is an emphasis in the question, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? What kind of answers would Jesus get from us if he were standing here? Well, followers of me in Applewood Community Church, who do you say I am? You think there was a, a pause? I think that this had probably come up in past conversations that the disciples had had. And, and so now Peter, of course, count on Peter, as he so often does, he just blurts it out. You are the Christ. So far, so good. And here's why I think this, this story is so strategic when placed up against the miracle of, of sight being restored to the blind man. What they see Jesus as is better than the blindness on the streets. At least they understand, they're expressing understanding that Jesus is the Christ, which is a step up from a great prophet. And I may be reading too much into the analogy, but I think maybe they need Jesus to spit in their eyes a little bit more and, and give them even clearer vision. N.T. Wright says that Jesus is giving their dream of Messiah a facelift. And that's about to happen. So let's stand and read together our text from Mark 8. <clears throat> together, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, for the gospel, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. My sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, go ahead and be seated. Wow. 
discipleship lesson. Don, can we put that next slide up? I want you to imagine that you're standing there, one of the 12. You've just heard Jesus say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Think about that for a moment. Get behind me, Satan. That's the equivalent, and I'm not meaning to be profane here, of who the hell do you think you are? Because that's where this idea is coming from. Get behind me, Satan. Okay, one of the 12, talk to your neighbor. What are you thinking and feeling right at this moment? Okay. We ready? Oh, disciples of Jesus, how are you feeling right about now? Kind of little? <laughs> Dennis, kind of little. What else? What do, you, what do you think? What do you feel? Come on. Kind of embarrassed for Peter. Yeah, but really glad that you weren't Peter at that moment. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Confused. Oh, yeah. Really confused, says Matt. Yeah. Or that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Or saying, you're wrong. Yeah, behind me, Satan. It's a Good. Yeah. What does Satan have anything to do here? <clears throat> it's, it's a harsh response. Lee? <clears throat> you know, this refers back to Satan's tempting Christ. How so? With, um, the, the worldly things that Satan tempted him. The desert. Okay. Okay. So, okay. You know, this is, he has, <clears throat> you know, you really don't have to do that. You don't want to do that. You don't have to do that. And that is a worldly temptation. And, you know, the verse after, Do you just want to finish up my sermon for me? That... <laughs> yeah, good, good connections. Good connections. Su Hang on, Therese. Go ahead, Susanna. Um, well, if, if we're taking the garden If there's another way. Such a good observation. Jesus feeling shut down <clears throat> by Peter. You know, that Peter is Peter's putting him in his, his proper place. I think good stuff. You guys are you're right on the money. Uh, these are the harshest words that Jesus ever spoke in the Gospels to anyone whose, whose heart was in the right place. And the reason for that is that the things of God to which Jesus refers, Peter, you're thinking of you're thinking of the things of man, human things, not the things of God. Those things of God, exactly what Suzanne is referring to, and some of you said it as well, 
His suffering, his rejection by the authorities, his death, and his resurrection. Mark tells us that those are the things that he began to teach them on their trek to Caesarea Philippi. And his response to Peter is explosive. Because in that moment, Peter was just clueless to how evil his suggestion is to Jesus. Peter took Jesus aside, began to rebuke him. Really? Rebuke him. That's what Mark writes. Peter had some nerve. But you can be sure that all the disciples were initially high-fiving one another because <clears throat> they are all concerned about this teaching that Jesus is now bringing to them. Teaching them plainly is what Mark says. He spoke these things plainly to them. That the Messiah, God's anointed one, is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the religious authorities, would not have their stamp of approval, which to the disciples and, and others in that world, that was very important. And he was going to die. The piece of the Messiah puzzle for the disciples and anyone else who wanted to follow Jesus was this. That the Messiah, <clears throat> who they believed him to be, and who had just opened the eyes of a blind man, something that only God can do, they'd never seen anything like that, that this one, all the pieces of the Messiah puzzle are falling together, but now he's going to die? What about the army? What about the following? What about gathering the army of people together, which was what tradition said the Messiah would do to expel the stinking Romans and put us back in the place of this world where we belong as the people of God? Do you begin to see how outrageous this is? So, the, the language that Mark uses suggests that Peter did this with an air of protective authority, if you will. <clears throat> kind of taking Jesus aside and slipping his arm around him and maybe something like, you know, Jesus, I, I believe that you are the Messiah. In fact, we, we all do, Jesus, but you, you got this wrong. You've got to stop talking about this suffering stuff or you're going to lose credibility. Something along those lines. <clears throat> Jesus had heard those kinds of words before, as Lee mentioned, in the wilderness. And Jesus turns on him because the voice that he hears from Peter sounds a whole lot like the one that he put up with in the desert for 40 days. And this, I think, is really important for us to remember. In his humanity, he was subject to every temptation that we face. I love what Susanna said about Jesus in the garden, praying great drops of, of, of bloody sweat 
falling to the ground, agonizing. Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, that's, that's Jesus, the 100% human, speaking to his Father. He was subject to temptations, and, and we can't miss the importance of that. It was no big deal is sometimes how we might spin it when we think about Jesus, the Son of God, rebuffing Satan in the desert. Jesus, the Son of God, who was 100% human and subject to all of the feelings and temptations that you and I have, yet without sin, according to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus wrestled with temptation. Always came out the victor in God's glory. And I think that that, that wilderness experience was so severe and so challenging for him, I think that in a way kind of feeds the response, the explosive response that we hear from Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, knows that salvation, the kind of saving that this Messiah has come to do, not from the Romans, but from themselves, from the sin, from the depravity of their own lives. This kind of salvation will only come through his suffering. It would be so much easier, so much easier to gather an army and rid Israel of Rome. The people were ready for a Messiah who would do that, but, but that is not the Messiah of God. That is a Messiah of Israel's making. The idea of suffering Messiah is found in Isaiah, 800 years before the life of Jesus. But somehow, that truth had not made its way into first century expectations of the Messiah's mission. And frankly, I, I believe it was because that notion is completely out of sync with human reasoning. This doesn't make sense. It makes sense for us who are standing on this side of the cross and understand theologically the idea of, of sin, and total depravity, and our need of salvation. <clears throat> but for those who are following closely with Jesus and aren't privy to the greater picture of theology that we have been given, they're thinking would go along the lines of who on earth would design a method of saving the world that includes disaster and despair and death. But that's God's plan. And Jesus feels it so strongly that he calls the crowd to him. <clears throat> this is really interesting to me. If you look at Mark's um, record, we are, we're right about the halfway point. And, and as Jesus finishes his, this, this ministry and this mission, especially to his disciples here in Caesarea Philippi, that they then begin to turn south and they head toward Jerusalem. Jesus is heading toward the final days of his life. And so Mark tells us that he calls the crowd to him along with the rest of his disciples. The, the language that, 
<clears throat> that he uses suggests that Jesus called it out loudly. Hey! Any of you who want to be my followers? Let me tell you what that's like. And the disciples are just thinking, oh my gosh, here we go. Here we go. And yes, here we go. That's the message of the cross. That is at the heart of the gospel. That is primary in the life and the teaching and the discipling and the leading of Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's not going to be that much longer after he has said this that Jesus takes up his cross. The heart of following Jesus. Now, this is a crazy way to end this, but Don, can we go to that third text? I'm jumping way up into chapter 9. <clears throat> so just bear with me here for a minute because you'd like to think that maybe after that explosiveness from Jesus that the disciples have learned something significant. But no, when they came to Capernaum, <clears throat> they were in the house, somebody's house, we don't know who, Jesus came to them, and he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. Ha! Think Peter. They kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And I read that and I go, come on. I mean, I am dumb, but you guys, you take the cake. And then I realize it's us. Lee. Oh. oh, more spit. Yeah, I need more spit. I need more, I need more touch. Yeah, but they kept quiet because on the way they'd argue about who was the greatest. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the faith of children and is telling them that humility, humility is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus, Paul says to us in Philippians 2, humbled himself. He did not consider equality with God something that he had to grasp or cling to. Hang on tightly. Jesus didn't come kicking and screaming to planet Earth. He left the glories of heaven and took on our flesh. Paul says he humbled himself and became a servant. He humbled himself and took on flesh, became a servant, and willingly died a horrific death for you and for me. And, and when we really rehearse those truths again, I guess my, my hope is, is that we look at the disciples not very far from that lesson going back to the default mode. Concerned about who's the greatest? Who's the most important? And that's when the light went on for me this week and I want to do some more with this next week. The light is this. 
the heart of discipleship is to deny myself. What does that mean? What does it mean to deny myself? We live in an age where we are all about affirming people. And, and don't get me wrong, we need to affirm the beauty and the wonder of humanity. But we can so begin to affirm that we swing way far away from, yeah, wonderful humanity that is broken and fallen because of sin. And so then what can happen is we begin to make Jesus a Messiah of our own making, and we begin to elevate the importance of ourselves, and Jesus just never teaches us anywhere to elevate the importance of ourselves. He teaches us to deny ourselves. To deny ourselves. What, is that, what does that look like? Practically speaking, how do I deny myself? And I thought, wow, what a, what a lesson in this season of Lent when we typically think of denying ourselves because we understand the denial of Jesus. But where I'd like to go just a little bit next week and then we'll continue on in this journey is to understand, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is not talking about denying things to ourselves. He's talking about denying self. Basically, the way I interpret this, and I don't know if you're going to like this or not, Jesus is saying, apart from me, and apart from my saving sacrifice, you are not that important. I know it kind of, it kind of, we, we conflict with that because evidently we're important enough to God that, that he, he hatched this plan of salvation and, 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 and brought it to us. So, so yes, we are important. We are invaluable to, to God in, in that sense. But on a day-to-day -day basis, as I work out, as we work out, what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus in this world basically means that I am not important and everyone else is more important than I am. That's the thinking, that's the attitude, I think, that Jesus wants us to get to in understanding that the kingdom of heaven and its values are always upside down. The first will be last and the last will be first. But those who would be my followers, they, they humble themselves and they become a servant to all. Wow. It, it, it shakes me to the core because when I wake up every day, first thing I think about is me. I just do. You know? I need my coffee. I need to see what I've got to do today. And, and, and those things, 
I, I know, it's a stupid example, but it, it's, it's illustrative of, of who we are. We, are. we are tied up in ourselves. It's all we know. Jesus came to free us from ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow after him in a life of sacrifice and for some suffering. So, let's end this morning with just another couple of moments of silence together. And go back to that question that we started with. What does it mean to you to be a follower of Jesus? What does that mean? What does that look like? Father, we recognize that truth comes from you. We recognize that it is a gift from you when truth turns on a light in our lives. We want to be disciples that are following after the Lord Jesus for who he is. It's way too easy to follow after a Messiah of our own making. Challenge us, we pray, with the truth of who Jesus is. The enormous task of denying self. The frightening prospect of taking up the cross. So that we might, according to Jesus, follow. We pray in his name.